y'all are here this morning. A um, couple quick announcements here before we uh, open up the scriptures together. Uh, first of all, and most importantly, uh, if you are a member or a regular attender here at Chili Bible, we do want you to stay after the service. Let's let everybody get dismissed that needs to go home. But uh, if you're a member uh, or a regular attender, we would like you to stay for just a few minutes and pray with us. We've got some things we want to share with you. Uh, and then we want to spend some time really seeking the Lord together in prayer. So uh, we uh, encourage you to do that. Uh, secondly, if you are brand new to Chili Bible, uh, or if you have been here for a long time, but you have never stepped forward and become a member, uh, I'm looking at part of you out there. Uh, I know who you know who you are. And uh, uh, you have been putting off becoming a member for a long time. Uh, we're having a membership class coming up. Uh, I encourage you to sign up for that and to um, and to to go through that with me. It's just a one-day thing. Uh, I believe it's uh, uh, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. We'll serve you lunch. We'll talk about the church and what it means to be a member and all that kind of thing. Uh, we'll feed you. It'll be great. Um, so uh, look forward to that as well. Now... Uh, Let me pray for us, and then I've got a story for you to start things off. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks into our life with such clarity, and it cuts through all of our excuse-making, all of the smoke that we blow, and gives us the unvarnished truth. And it not only confronts us with the truth, but also tells us how to respond to it and how to repent of sin and how to be in right relationship with you. And Father, we pray this morning that as we open your word, that we would have ears to hear uh, what the Spirit of God has spoken uh, through his word. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of my favorite fairy tales is Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes. And the story goes like this. Once upon a time, in a far-off land, there lived a wealthy but foolish emperor. And one day, two con artists came to town to see the emperor and to sell him the rarest and finest clothing in the world. And on hearing this, the emperor granted them an audience, and the two men set about explaining that what made their clothing so amazing was that they could only be seen by the wise and the pure in heart. And the emperor was, being foolish, uh, intrigued and delighted by the idea, and especially the part about the clothing being invisible to all but the wise and the pure. And so he immediately commissioned the men to set about making him some new imperial regalia. And the two con artists, having received a vast sum for their work, immediately set upon their loom and began to to busily pretend weaving the fabric. And after a while, the emperor's curiosity got the better of him, and he sent his prime minister to investigate the men's progress. Well, the prime minister came, and he watched for a while, but he saw no fabric, and he did not wish to be thought unwise or impure, and so he reported back to the emperor on the fabulous beauty of the fabric he did not see. 
And after a bit longer, the con artist asked for a bit more money now that they were in the process of sowing. And the emperor became impatient again, and so he insisted on sending another of his chief ministers who again went and again observed and again saw nothing, but nevertheless returned with an even more enthusiastic report. And after this, the emperor himself went to see the progress. He could see nothing, but he could not bear the thought that his ministers being, uh, being more pure in heart and more wise than he. And so he too enthusiastically remarked upon the beauty of the fabric and even gave the men medals for their work. And finally, the emperor announced a parade to show off his new imperial regalia. He was dressed in his invisible finery by its makers who promptly made their exit from town. And just prior to his appearance, the prime minister remarked upon the unique qualities of the emperor's new clothes, that they could only be seen by the wise and the pure in heart. And so as the parade began to start, people oohed and awed as they saw the emperor's new clothes. Until one little child stood along the parade route and said, you know, he looks naked to me. At which point everybody, including the emperor, realized that it had all been a giant charade and the truth had finally been spoken out loud. And everybody, with the sole exception of the emperor, began to laugh. And that story is proverbial in our culture because it reminds us that one clear, bold statement of the truth cuts through a lot of foolishness and self-deception, doesn't it? And God's Word is beautiful in that it does the same thing for us. It is the giant baloney grinder uh, of the world, right? It cuts through it all. And all of the smoke that we blow, all of the, uh, you know, all the snow machines that we turn on to, to keep everybody else and most of all ourselves deceived in the lies that we believe, the Scripture cuts through them all and gives us the truth and reveals our self-deceiving pretensions to be exactly that. And so if you've got uh, your Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3 because this chapter is given to us by God to help us see how naked we really are without the Savior. And so that we will turn to Him for cleansing and for covering uh, to the Lord Jesus because He provides both of the things that we need, cleansing and covering. And so, if you've got your Bible there, Romans chapter 3, I want to read you verse 1 and 2 first, which talk about how having God's Word is an advantage, uh, is a blessing. Uh, Paul says this, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
Now, I know that we just read these verses, but let me just pull back from them just a second and give us a little context. Because what Paul is doing here at the beginning of chapter 3 is drawing some conclusions now from what he has just been saying to us. In chapter 1, he tells us uh, how the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And then in the rest of chapter 1, he tells us all about the sin of the Gentiles and how much they need salvation. And then he spends all of chapter 2 talking about the sins of the Jewish people and how much they need salvation. And so now here in chapter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he's going to then give some additional commentary to his fellow Jews about why they need the gospel. Because many of them thought, well, we're good Jews. We don't need the gospel. The Gentiles, now, I mean, their sin is real obvious, and it's nasty, and it's different from ours, and so they obviously need the gospel. But, what are, you know, we're, we're kind of in the clear here, Paul, don't you think? And Paul is going to say, no. No, religious people need the gospel just as much as heathens. And and. and People might be asking after all that he has said in chapter, chapter 2 about how much Jews need the gospel too. Well, what advantage is it to be a Jew then, Paul? And Paul's answer is essentially, well, to begin with, to just list one, if you're a Jew, you have possession of the scriptures. And so, you have an enormous benefit if you have the Scripture. Well, Paul, if you're correct that being a Jew doesn't save you and participating in Jewish religious rites and knowing the Mosaic Law doesn't save you, what's the benefit? Well, you have God's Word. And God's Word is a huge advantage. Because if you have a Bible, you know all kinds of truth from God. You know what is wrong with the world. You know where you came from and why you're here and where you're going. And you know who God is and you know what He requires of you to be in relationship with Him. And you know what a just society looks like and about the necessity of death for sin and about uh, how to have a good relationship with other people and how to have a good relationship with God. And you can learn all of these things even if all you have from the Scriptures is just your Old Testament, which is what they had at this point. The Bible says about itself that in the, in the Word of God is all things that we need to know for life and godliness. So having the Bible is in itself a humongous blessing. And if you have a choice, it is far better to be a person with God's Word than a person without God's Word. Because you have a far better opportunity to know that you're a sinner and to come to genuine faith if you have exposure to God's Word. But what it does not do is make you automatically a different kind of person. Amen? Lots of people have the Bible, read the Bible, know what the Bible says, and who are not transformed by what they read. 
And he's saying, look, you have this huge advantage, but it doesn't automatically make you a different kind of person. Simply having God's word will not save you. Let's keep reading here. Beginning verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if your if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, this little section of Scripture here can be hard to understand, so I'll try to make things really simple here. Here in these verses, what Paul is doing is answering three objections that he gets when he shares the gospel with Jewish people. And um, the first objection is verse 3. And I want to reword the question here just a little bit. Uh, what, what is being asked when, when what Paul says here in verse 3 is this. Uh, does their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? What they're saying is, is, on, is essentially this. Paul, how can you say on the one hand that Jews have been so unfaithful to the privileges they've been given as Jews that they need salvation... Uh, and on the other, that our having God's word is an advantage. How does that work, Paul? How can you say that? Because if having God's word is an advantage, then why isn't there more transformation among the people who have it? Maybe the problem is not with us. Maybe the problem is with God. Does our faithlessness nullify, I mean, our faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? That's what they're asking. If we've been unfaithful to the word of God, then maybe the problem is not with us. Maybe the problem is with God. And what he's saying is this. Here's his answer. Verse 4. By no means. That's one of the, by the way, there's two words in Greek that are the most, they're the strongest way to say no that um, that there is in Greek to say it. It's the words me genoita. Okay, now you don't need to know that. It's not going to be on the test. All right. It's just, but but what it means is no, never. Okay. <laughs> it's basically what that means, that not in any circumstances is that true. <laughs> right? Um, in other words, by, there's no way in which that could possibly happen. May it never come to pass. May it never exist, is what he's saying. That is not true. And he then quotes Psalm 51. Uh, that Those verses that you have kind of offset in your Bible, that you may be justified in your word and prevail when you are judged. He is, he is quoting David. 
from Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51, if you're not familiar with it, is the psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Uh, He'd had the whole incident with Bathsheba. He'd uh, had Bathsheba's husband killed and uh, continued on in his relationship with her. She bore his child uh, that she had conceived in adultery with David. And, uh, and the child is born, and David thinks, I got away with it. And then the prophet comes and confronts him. And David is cut to the heart. And he writes Psalm 51. And David, in that, and the, the verses that he's quoting here, affirm God's faithfulness and his righteous judgment. In other words, David is saying the problem is not with God. The problem is with me. And that if anyone would put God under judgment, he would always prevail. He would always be acquitted because there is nothing you can charge God with in terms of being unrighteous. God's character has never changed no matter how many people sin and fail to live up to what God calls them to. He remains faithful to His Word and He remains completely righteous regardless of how many people sinfully rebel. And David was regarded as one of the greatest men in Israel. And he was not faithful, at least not 100% of the time. But David said, the fault is mine, not God's. So that's Paul's answer. Uh, His second objection is in verse 5. Some people apparently say this, well, Paul... If God is showing, if God reveals his righteousness by my failure, then he is simply using us and our failures to magnify himself. And if he's doing that, well, then God is an unrighteous God. And if God is unrighteous, then he's unjustified for judging us. He's not qualified to judge. Because if God is just using us to, to make himself look good by our, because our sin is a great contrast to his character, well then, he's unrighteous. And he can't judge. And, and Paul thinks this is a stupid argument, by the way. Um, <laughs> I just want you to see that, okay? There's a little parenthetical uh, note there that says, where he says, I speak in a human way. In other words, I don't think this is actually true. I don't think this is actually valid. This is a dumb argument, but I'm going to, I'm going to share it with you because it's one that people have given to me. And he says again, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? Uh, in other words, let's be honest here, y'all. Let's be honest. We know better than that. We know that God will judge the world, and He will judge you as well. And we also know that He is righteous, and let's be honest about that. Let's stop playing games and stop pretending that we don't know what we do know, that God is righteous, and He is the judge of the entire world, including us. And the final objection is verse 7 and 8, and it's even more pointed. 
says, but if by my lie God's truth ab- abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do good? I mean, why not do evil that good may come? And then Paul's comment again is, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. The argument is basically this. If my sin makes God look good, well then why not sin a lot so we make God look even better? I mean, hey, I mean, you know, why not, right? Because my sin is really dark, and the darker it is, the better God looks. So, hey, let's just sin boldly that grace may abound, right? Let's sin in such a way to make God look really great. And again, you know, you need to understand, Paul says, look, we don't teach that. People slander us with saying that. We don't, treat, we don't teach that. I don't believe any part of that. And it's a ridiculous argument that totally disregards the difference between good and evil. And Paul doesn't even answer it. He's like, I'm not even going to dignify this with a response. Except to say that those people who act on that belief and who live that way, are justly condemned. Because they do know that there is a difference between good and evil. And a heart that is that hardened toward God, that says and acts on the belief, well, why not do evil that God might look good by contrast, is a heart that is really hardened away from God. And so what we've seen so far here in in, in these verses, these first eight verses, is that having God's Word is an advantage. It is an incalculable blessing, in fact, to have and to be able to think God's thoughts after Him about all of the things that Scripture speaks about. And I don't know about you, but I can hardly imagine what my life would be like without the influence of the scriptures. Because everybody in my family, everybody that I am close to, not only has the scriptures, but is trying to live by the scriptures. And so, I can't even imagine how I would know how to live life apart from that, apart from the influence of the scriptures. And it's this huge blessing. And we do have that. But we also have been seeing that God is still righteous in punishing and judging sin. No matter what kind of ridiculous arguments we might make against him for doing that. And what we're going to see here in the next, in the rest of uh, these verses here, 9 through 20, is Paul is going to tell us why God is justified in punishing sin. And the answer is, Because nobody actually obeys God's Word. Nobody actually obeys God's Word. So read these verses with me here. I want to show you these. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right. So here's what Paul is doing. Uh, Sarah, have you got that chart? He's pointing out that even though Jews have this huge advantage over Gentiles in having the Scriptures, that they still need the Gospel. And they still need to find salvation in Christ by grace through faith. And so that's what he's talking about when he asks the question, are Jews any better off? He's saying that even though Jews possess the Scriptures, when it comes to having the righteousness required to enter into God's presence, they are in the same boat as Gentiles. That they are in some ways just as bad off as Gentiles, because even though they have the Scriptures, they're still not righteous people. And they are just, their sins maybe aren't the same kind, they maybe aren't as obvious, but they're just as real, and they're just as worthy of God's judgment, and and God's judgment will come to all, both Jews and Gentiles, who don't find salvation through faith in Christ. And then to underscore the point, what he does is he just stacks up Scripture from the Old Testament. He, he quotes uh, Psalms uh, quite a bit, and also Isaiah, and also uh, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And you can see every line of, this, of these verses that are quoted has a reference next to it. So, there, there's no one righteous. That's Psalm 14.3, also Ecclesiastes 7.20. Uh, no one understands. That's uh, Psalms 14, uh, verse 2, and uh, chapter 53, verse 2. You know, it just goes all the way down the line and just stacks up accusation after accusation after accusation. And he starts in the beginning with with Jewish people and their sinful condition. Okay? And then he moves from sinful condition, in other words, not just that you do sin, but that you are sin. That you are sinners. That in your very nature, it is in in the very character of who you are as a person to sin. And then you act on that. What flows out of that sin nature is sinful speech. And he talks about your throat, your tongue, and your lips, right? There's a progression so that in the entire act of speaking, your speech is corrupted by sin. And then he, gives, he moves from there to sinful actions. 
He says, you're violent people whose lives are full of ruin and misery and you do not know how to live in peace. You do not know how to live in peace. And his final summary statement is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And every little phrase, again, is a quotation from Psalms or Ecclesiastes or Isaiah And every single one is meant to emphasize the fact that Jews are sinners too. Every single one. And just in case anybody missed the point, Paul underlines it further in verse 19. He says, look, whatever the law says, it says to people who are under it. In other words, the things that I just quoted to you, you Jewish people are not things that God said to the Gentiles. They're things God said to us. They're things God said to us. That our throats are open graves. That the venom of asps is on our lips, etc. In other words, to the people who have the Scriptures. That these things are all true of us. If you're reading Psalms and Isaiah, you're reading your own mail, not somebody else's. And the point is, is that if you're a Jew and if you have the law, then the law proclaims you guilty because there is no righteousness available in keeping the law. All the law does for you, according to verse 20, is to point out your sin and how far short you are of keeping it. And the point of all of these verses is this, that even though having God's word is a great advantage and a great blessing, that God is righteous in punishing sinners because all are sinners. Nobody obeys God's word. Not Gentiles who don't know about it. Not Jews who have had it in their possession for thousands of years. Or to say it another way, we all need salvation. Every single one of us. We all need salvation. Amen? And the corollary to this is that since we are all equally guilty of sin, even if we're not all equally guilty of all the same types of sin, then God's grace is magnified to an infinite degree. Because it's not that God looked down from heaven and saw uh, all of us and said, well, you know, I'm going to save out of that mess just the good people. The point of these verses is that there are no good people from which God could pick if that's what He was going to do. Right? Um, You know, I've said this before, but it bears repeating that uh, it really is true that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The problem is, is that the only good person who has ever lived is Jesus. Okay, so the world does not divide between bad people and good people. It divides between bad people and Jesus. 
And God magnifies his grace in that he sent Jesus to die not for good people, but for wicked people who were corrupted in their nature, in their speech, in their actions, in their thoughts, in every part of them. They were corrupt and turned away from God. Whether we're talking Gentiles, chapter 1, Jews, chapter 2, and chapter 3, all of us are equally alike going to be condemned before God for our sin unless Jesus intervenes. And the point is to magnify the grace of God. God chose to save wicked Gentiles, though they ran as far as they could away from Him, as fast as their idolatry could take them. As As deep into their immorality as they could get, they went and God chose to save them. And God saves self-righteous Jews who, because of the covenant God made with Abraham, think that they are something special, but in reality are just as wicked as the rest of us. And just as, as, as deserving of God's punishment and judgment. And yet, despite all of our guilt and sin and shame and the fact that every one of us of whatever stripe and category of sin, all alike deserve to die, not only physically, but to die eternally separated from God in hell. God sent His Son into the world to save us. And that is grace. Amen? That's the Bible word for that. That God did not save the good, He saved the wicked of all types and kinds. And that is the goodness and love and grace and patience and mercy of God. That is what we celebrate every time that we come together in worship. Not that I was, I was pretty good but fell a little bit short of God's standard, but that I was so far short we weren't even in the same universe and God saved me anyway. You know, I've used this illustration before, and it, but it remains valid and important. You know, imagine that if, if, if God said, the standard of righteousness is this. It's very simple. You have to be able to swim from here to Japan. And so you, you drive yourself out to San Francisco Bay, and you hop in the water, and you start swimming. I don't know how far you get. Okay, if it's me, that's not very far. Okay, I can swim for a bit, but I bet I don't make it a mile off the beach. Okay, Um, before either the sharks get me or I just kind of go, well, I'm going to have to back float, I guess, (laughs) because uh, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to make it, right? Maybe if you're Michael Phelps, maybe you get 20 or 30 miles. Okay. That's impressive compared to me, right? But what's the problem? It's still about 8,000 miles uh, from there, (laughs) from wherever he stops and dies in the ocean. Oh, hello. Um, From wherever he stops and dies in the ocean to wherever the outer rim of the Japanese home island starts, right? 
And it's the same distance, same kind of vast distance that's absolutely insurmountable apart from the love and grace and mercy of God. I do not need swimming lessons, amen? Well, I probably do, but, um, but my point is, is that more effort being applied to trying harder is not going to get the job done. I need someone with a boat who can carry me from here to there. Not more effort applied by myself. And that's the point that he's talking about. We need a different means of attaining salvation. Not more effort being applied to our own selves. So, I want to pray. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about how God's righteousness comes. But you'll have to come back next week and hear that. Okay? This week, we're just talking about how, as the Pirates of the Caribbean says, you're rascals and scoundrels and really bad eggs. <laughs> right? Uh, and we are. Right? We are all of us rascals and scoundrels and really bad eggs. But God and His grace saves all of us from our sin and from its consequences. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing about God's goodness together. All right? God, our Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that though we have the Word of God, though we know what it tells us about how righteous and holy You are and how far short of Your standard we fall We don't act on that in a way that is beneficial for ourselves we, because we cannot. Our sin nature has made a division between us and you that we cannot bridge by our own effort. We cannot work hard enough, do enough, give enough, sacrifice enough to be righteous in your sight. And out of your love, Father, you sent Christ that we might be made righteous that we might receive the free gift of salvation, which takes us all the way home. And Father, we look forward to the day when we will be home with you. Until that day comes, Father, may we sing and never tire of your grace and your mercy. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.